Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here with Eric Horvitz. Eric is the Chief Scientific Officer at Microsoft. Eric, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Great to be here, and thanks for having me. I am really looking forward to our conversation, and I'd love to start it off by having you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in AI. Thanks. Well, I've had a long interest in how the brain works, how the mind works. I think this is some of the, these are some of the earliest questions we ask ourselves as kids. And um, going into, as an undergraduate, I was interested in biology and the origins of life, some basic questions. I did a, a degree in biophysics. I went off to do an MD, PhD in neurobiology, in neuroscience, largely because as I got into my junior and senior years at college, I started working in a lab, a neurobiology lab, where I would actually pull micropipettes, they're called little electrodes that can get into the neuron of brains, in this case of little animals, and listen in to the clicks and the clacks, action potentials. I started getting more and more curious about brain. So I, I wanted to go through the MD, PhD path. I thought that would give me access to people someday. And uh, I was interested also with a growing interest in biomedicine. And at Stanford, where I started my graduate work in the first six or seven months or so, I started making a commitment to moving more towards computation because I, I thought more and more that we wouldn't get great insights through sticking little electrodes in brains for a thousand years, then might as well go to the mathematics side of things. Hmm. Yeah, I remember thinking that what I would do if I was to stay on the MD-PhD path in neurobiology would be kind of akin to taking a little copper wire and putting it into a chip, uh, the motherboard of those days, an Apple II computer, and try to figure out the operating system. And I just didn't want to be going there. I thought I had better insights to jump ship towards computer science. And then I just said, remember that moment where I was in CS and doing um, classes and I said, this is what I want to be doing. It's <laughs> giving me some insights about what mind might be and how computation might lead to it. It's interesting that you describe that transition. I think some of the most interesting conversations I have on the podcast are ones that explore this interplay between the biology and what we're doing on the computational side and the two-way intellectual street between the two fields of study. Absolutely. And you might say that um, in both cases, and of course they're related, there's this interesting magic we don't understand, that the bio and how bio makes minds. And then we have this mechanism, machine computing side that we actually can make progress on and understand. And, and we're always facing off at this big mystery and getting, we hope, inching towards it. But sometimes the chasm is even even dark matter. We don't know how far away we are from getting there. Mm-hmm. Among other things, you've been very involved in a number of industry organizations, including the Association for the Advancement of AI. I think you probably didn't go into all that because if you listed all of them, we'd be you know forty minutes in. Yeah, but one of the and I think you were president at one point. And in 2009, you, uh, as part of your involvement in that organization, kicked off a study of AI ethics, which is going to be one of the themes that we dig into in this conversation. 
I wonder if you can maybe tell us a little bit about that effort, how it got started, yeah. what the context was for it. You know, it, and it's funny because it seems so over the top back then when I proposed this. But so, <laughs> so when I when I um, became president of AAAI, you basically be, you, there's a it's kind of a, a process. You're president elect, then you're president, then you're past president. So it's, it's multi year service. But when I came in, it, it's interesting. It's also a reflection of where AI was in 2007 uh, to 2009 was my kind of term, mm-hmm. and I decided to to make the theme of my presidency. AI in the open world. And what I meant by that was, you know, let's take what AI is coming out of the laboratories and it's becoming, it's, it's getting useful. It's getting real. Uh, and um, the open world, as I, as I like to refer to it, is pretty complicated. It's much bigger than our systems can represent. It's much more complicated than our laboratory environments. Might we build systems on the technical side that have the ability to understand their limitations such that they're humble and know what they don't know. And might this might not this be one of several technologies we need to master to get systems to be robust and reliable in the open world that they weren't so overconfident and brittle and fragile. Mm-hmm. And so I, I gave my presidential lecture on that topic of where we had to go as a field. Presidents at AAAI gave a, a lecture when one of their years of their office. And then I also proposed that we needed to sort of come together as leading AI scientists and think about the implications of our technologies on people and society, the influences broadly about what it would mean for ethics and law and safety. Um, and it was this was a time when people were reading books by, and they probably still are, by Ray Kurzweil and Singularity Coming. And there was this kind of utopian view of what AI, where it might go, as well as a dystopian view kind of being bantered about. And I thought, you know, we haven't really weighed in as folks that are committed to the technology as the scientists who you think should be responsible for where the technologies go. So I called together about uh, 25 people that I chose especially for diversity and also for knowing them quite well. I mean, these people would be committed to th- figuring things out and wouldn't say I was crazy for asking questions about long-term AI advances as well as ethical and legal challenges, uh, as well as short-term disruptions. And so we had we broke the, this group up into three different working groups, short-term disruptions, long-term AI futures, and ethics and law. And for several months would meet. We all came together in February of 2009 at a Silomar that was symbolic. That's where the biologists had met a couple of decades before, talk about recombinant DNA and what it would mean. And it was two and a half days of fabulous meetings covering multiple topics. And that was the first time I even heard from working groups. I even heard this phrase, I remember, from the short-term group, criminal AI. It's like, <laughs> whoa, what is that? <laughs> you know, criminal uses, malevolent uses by nation, state, and non-state actors of how you could use AI now with these new kinds of information feeds coming together from consumer uses of AI, for example, right. and data sets and connectivity. We also looked at um, long-term AI futures, addressing the concerns of dystopian futures, losing control of AI. We hear from in books like later that came out, like from Nick Bostrom and, and others. Super intelligence. So I actually asked somebody, uh, one of the members who I, who's a very good, fabulous scholar. I said, hey, look at Asimov's laws of robotics. And could we implement those laws in constraints and preferences and, and really feel the system we could completely trust to do the right thing 
when it came to safety. And we had other issues as well in law and so on that were, I would say, foreshadowing of what came of this area. By the way, speaking of disruptions and possibilities, on the first day of that Asilomar meeting, I invited two people who I thought would be able to answer this question. And it was Andrew Ang at the time mm-hmm. uh, and Tom Dean, who's then at, my, then at Google. Uh, and I said, can you tell us what surprises were on our horizon in the near term? Like what would surprise us as AI researchers? This was basically 2009 in February, and they both gave deep learning talks, which was kind of exotic at the time, Uh, supervised and unsupervised learning. And that summer in July and August, deep neural networks were were found to basically be uh, have interesting power that was not leveraged in the past because we just didn't have the data sets to do it. And that's Mm -hmm. when we saw the explosion right after there in a workshop in October and boom. So they predicted a surprise that was going to have big effects. That's still even three years before what we often think of as the real explosion with ImageNet in 2012, right? Right. Well, I think what happened was, uh, per my lens on the situation at the time, was there's a funny story behind this involving Jeff Hinton and me. But I'm not going to go there exactly unless you really probe on that. But Jeff Hinton (laughs) joined us at Microsoft. That sounds like a challenge. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. Jeff joined us at Microsoft Research that summer, and we looked at speech recognition and word error recognition rates, and we saw this jump uh, on a data set called the switchboard data set uh, that had been flat in terms of the, the people hammering on it for a decade. And we said, like, you know, like this was a big deal. And this happened at MSR, you know, uh, Building 99 here at Microsoft. And that led to a workshop in the fall that was really brought people together to say, well, what was going on? Like, how did this happen? And that was the path up towards ImageNet and so on. And the discovery was, by the way, and we're off the track a little bit of the ethics and responsibility, but mm-hmm. might interest your listeners. The discovery was that, because the methods weren't that different from the neural nets of the late 80s and 90s, early 90s, but the discovery was these neural nets had been famished all these years for data. And we just didn't know it. Mm -hmm. So you kicked off this effort in 2009. And what was the scope of it? Was it limited to this meeting or was it a a long-term study? How how did you approach thinking about this issue? I thought it it was exotic enough just to have a multi-month single study uh, with a simple report that we wrote. There's a webpage on the event did a report out at the Ichikai conference. It's another international meeting the following summer. Got lots of interest and response. That briefing led to an article that was surprisingly on the front page of the New York Times about our gathering above the fold, as they say. And it created all this excitement and fear, as well as questions. Mm-hmm. I remember the phone was ringing off the hook when a headline appeared something along the lines of, and you can still find this online as this New York Times piece, like AI scientists uh, discuss um, how machines might outsmart man. That was kind of the headline. You can imagine that, you know, we get calls from all over the major news, you know, organizations and so on. Like, well, you, wait a minute, this wasn't like a crackpot. This was a group of scientists saying this. This is, should we take this seriously? That was the kind of questions we were getting at the time. So again, this meeting is predates... The popularity of deep learning predates AlexNet and clearly predates kind of our contemporary conversations around trustworthiness and responsibility and bias. How do you compare and contrast 
what you talked about then and what you talk about now and how do they yeah. interrelate to one another? You know, Sam, this, this, this is like the reality of where we were with AI back then. The basic assumption my colleagues and I had as you know, grad students and then early career scientists were along the lines of, if we can just get this thing to work, you know, with steam coming out of it and huffing and puffing, gears <laughs> rotating, it's a big success. And the things you would build would be like small numbers of things, like a prototype or a prototype and its descendant. You build like a readmissions prediction system for healthcare. And I was like, you just would say, yes, it works. I get well calibrated probabilities out of this thing that a patient will bounce back in 30 days, for example, with training off electronic health records. So there's always a celebration of the goodness of getting anything to just darn work. And it was um, a stretch at the time to start thinking about stuff that not just worked, whether it worked poorly or not, but that would be distributed and have huge effects on the planet. And so it's just a different feel for the level of influence and responsibility that became much more obvious a few years later. In fact, in 2013 or so, just four years later, I thought to myself, we should do this again. We should have another meeting like this and get this same group or a bigger group together because it's getting more important now to get the scientific point of view, the scientists who are really committed, uh, that could understand some of the problems deeply and maybe address them. And I said, okay, it would be five years in 2014. And then I thought, you know, it's kind of like induction, N gets N plus one. <laughs> we should do this every five years for like the rest of the history of human civilization, because this stuff's going to move fast as technology and it's going to have a huge influence. And we need to understand our relationship with the technology. And that's when I, I had a discussion with my significant other. And we thought, I wonder if we could make our first bit of major, you know, our first significant philanthropy, the endowment of some sort of a center that would always do a report every five years and make sure it happened that would be proactive, that would look out, that would have a sort of framing of a set of core topics that would be kind of timeless in terms of concerns. Um, and this is what led to the 100-year study that's now at Stanford. It's called the 100-year study at, on, on artificial intelligence, but it really is a study that will happen every five years for as long as Stanford University exists. Mm -hmm. And John Hennessy at the time assured me he thought it would last longer than 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> president at the time. So, so it, we, should, we can maybe take a, a detour a little bit and talk about your role at Microsoft briefly. And sure. because I want to, I want to explore the ethics of the theoretical ethics and what I imagine is much more real and tangible issues that you yeah. must encounter when talking to customers that are actually trying to do things and assessing, you know, risk and responsibility and, and things like that. Yeah. So this work, at, yeah. So I just mentioned some of the, the framing, which was the Stanford study for me and thinking about this with our colleagues and then mm -hmm. getting this Stanford University long-term study set up over time. At Microsoft, there was rising interest and concerns as well, um, given our role in the world and how central AI was to Microsoft and to our future. And as far as the, I say, the, the modern history of work in this space, uh, Satya Nadella kicked off a discussion in 2016, called together a small group. And we asked ourselves, and he asked, he led the discussion, what are our AI principles? 
And it was a very interesting discussion. And it converged on six principles. It was 20 at one time and 14, but it converged down to six, which we have, we call Microsoft's AI principles, fairness, reliability and safety, privacy and security, inclusiveness, transparency and accountability. And we have a little, internally at Microsoft, we have a little sentence and then click through for a bigger paragraph and more detail on each one of those six principles that we've now socialized with the company. We have an annual training about what they mean. But that was the beginning. And then around those principles, working with Brad Smith, I set up what's called the Ether Committee. And Ether, A-E-T-H-E-R, stood for and stands for AI Ethics and Effects in Engineering and Research. And that was the start in late 2016, early 2017 of a committee and then a set of working groups that would focus on specific topics, largely aligned with those principles. A few more. One of them was called, for your question, Sam, the Sensitive Uses Panel. Mm -hmm. And this panel became the body by which we would define and then roll out a process for the company to send sensitive uses uh, for review. And even defining for Microsoft, for our processes, for Ether Committee, what would what was a sensitive use of AI technology? It was kind of an interesting endeavor in itself early on. And keeping it simple but powerful, for example. So we just give you a sense. We said, okay, a sensitive use of AI, one that should come to the sensitive uses panel for review, is if a product team is thinking about developing a product or has one out there already that is at risk of denying consequential services to somebody or a subgroup, healthcare, finance, or education, or is there a risk of physical or psychological harm, or could the technology infringe upon human rights? And Microsoft you know, makes a commitment. We have our own human rights document, which sits on top of the international human rights document. And we, we always, we think often about, well, does this thing that we're doing or this service that we're creating, does it put us at risk for a commitment we've made to human rights? So those three distinctions define sensitive uses. And then to date, we were checking, checking recently, we've reviewed over 235 sensitive use cases, some of which go all the way up to, the, to Brad Smith and the SLT for deliberation. That's how that works. Uh, and so... Um, and I've been proud and excited about how we've handled these cases and how they define our thinking and our precedents and how we move forward and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, or I'm, I'm curious about where we're at a time now where there's the recent Karen Howe article about you know, Facebook's challenges, trying to empower its responsible AI team to act responsibly. We've seen what's going on with the Google ethical AI team and Timnit Gebru and Meg Mitchell. And there are a lot of data points that are causing folks to question the the power relationship between these responsible AI teams and the companies that they're inside of that are, you know, ultimately trying to drive a profit and sell whatever it is that they're trying to sell ads or software or search engine clicks or what have you. And I'm curious, I guess, if there are things that you learned in the Aether process that you think are, you know, maybe non-negotiables or that are differentiators that, not that you know what other folks are doing, but 
Yeah, I, mean, I guess I'm curious your take on the relationship between these responsible AI teams and just being inside of corporations. Yeah, the first thing I'd say is, um, and it might, might maybe be an observation, I think it's an important one. I found that it's critically important for the genuine interest and commitment on responsibility with technology and with AI for me and this for the Ether work really depends and goes up to the top leadership of the company. You know, like so Satya is all in on this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, you see the passion in his voice, like in an email about when there was like some unfairness that showed up in an application. And it was like, I don't care what the profit issues are. We're not going to be shipping unfair technologies. There's like a, a deep commitment there that you can rely on. Um, Brad Smith, just a, a deep commitment. The notion of thinking about even asking the question for Microsoft, why does Microsoft exist? What are we here for? What are we here to do? And the, the idea of profit comes from doing valuable things in the world. Uh, and we want to basically start with what it is that we're doing in the world and coming off that. Now, that said, we are a commercial entity, as you're pointing out. And there are the stresses and pushes to do well in marketplaces and to compete with other um, organizations. And there's also the sense that and the potential pressures to try your best to do well and it not coming through the way one wants and per the initial definitions of, for example, a program on responsible AI. My sense is, and again, the, the way we've handled it at Microsoft has been to just do good work in this space, not talk about it so much, not be boastful, be humble, because these are hard problems, go public when it be useful uh, to talk about what it is that we do. And I think it's, we have to be careful and cautious because we you, know, you can easily be called out for doing what, what this new phrase, which you never expected to, to appear, ethics washing. Like you're just trying to be mm-hmm. virtual signaling and not really doing right. great work. There's a real deep commitment at Microsoft to doing really strong work in this space. You're really trying to figure it out. And if we can't, to be transparent about it. Uh, and I don't want to be boastful or say that we're way different than other companies, but there's a certain maturity at Microsoft. I think maybe it comes from our age, <laughs> wisdom over time, maybe. And also the fact that there's a deep commitment to empowering people and organizations as our mission and a breadth of products and services that really span, uh, I'd say, all of computing in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know, and then we see specific uh, concerns. And first of all, we're always learning and we're always trying to get better, so we're not perfect. But we do see concerns like with people talking about commercial entity and its publications and control publications. And I'll just say, I remember the moment I decided when our startup was acquired by Microsoft in 1992, the moment I decided to commit to coming to Microsoft and to help start Microsoft Research back then, we were one of the early groups at MSR, was when Nathan Mirvold committed to me, there will not be any publication controls on research papers. Hmm. And that was the commitment back then. And it's the commitment that stayed with us. So we rely on peer committees and the researchers to decide on like when to publish and peer review committees out there in the world to review which has been a major uh, criticism we've heard from at least uh, some of the recent incidents out um, that, that are concerning to people about companies and control of, of information. Mm-hmm. And all I can say is like, you know, again, let me, not, let me be collegial here. I'm also involved with the Partnership on AI, an organization that brings together Google, Facebook, Amazon, 
Apple, IBM, and many Sony and many other companies, mm-hmm. along with nonprofits, civil society organizations like the ACLU uh, and other teams. And I should say that um, there's a, a struggle and a collegiality to understand how we can all do better, how we can share best practices, for example, with one another. And um, I do believe that the other companies are also working hard to figure things out over time and will get better over time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there examples you can share of the internal process at work at Microsoft, this Aether, I forget the specific name, critical technologies or... Sensitive uses. Sensitive uses. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, again, we don't talk in detail about many of these cases to date, but here's a few examples. Here's an example. So one example is an example of, of uh, and a very different categories too, you can imagine. So a platform technology, for example, that might come out of our cognitive services team. So a few years ago, we developed a technology uh, and others have come, done similar things that we call neural TTS, text speech. That was fabulous in that you could speak to a, a system, give us a few uh, snippets of how you speak and have the deep neural net model learn to speak like you so well that it could, if you had ALS and were losing your voice, you could rely on this instead of um, a machine-like text, a voice to speak to your family or have it be used to narrate in a very natural way um, uh, broadcast news. Mm-hmm. It also could be used for malevolent purposes. Uh, someone could steal your voice and uh, have you call your bank and write a check and send it somewhere. Uh, or could feign to be a politician, a political leader, making a statement that could be very dangerous and threatening, and fraudulent. So Sensitive Uses Committee deliberated uh, and um, sent a recommendation to our SLT that this technology should be gated, should not be freely available. It should be licensed uh, under certain restrictions such that like a news organization could license it for use. That's an example of the kind of technology that really it, it went through a process whereby a, a panel met, worked with the, the local expert team in our cognitive services area, wrote a report which went to the Ether board. Uh, that report was refined. Typically what's done in those reports is that there's a, a recommendation that's made an alternate or one or more alternates, each one will be a cost-benefit analysis. Here's why we're doing this. If we don't do this, here's some costs. Here's the upside, the downside. And then we, if, if it's something that has not been precedent that really needs senior top leadership of the company to look at and make a call, we take it up to the senior leaders. I have to say that um, I don't remember a time where the, you know, where the top one or two recommendations wasn't the one that was selected from the Ether Committee for execution uh, by the company. Another example was when Microsoft uh, early on was, it has, so Microsoft does not just has, it has platform technologies, it has, you know, sort of productivity suites and applications, it's developer tools. It also does contract work. It does custom tailored work for um, organizations, third parties and governments and um companies. Um, And there was a case where um, a country with a poor human rights record got excited about having Microsoft help to customize a system that's done for safe public safety and for uh, notifications and for coordinating fire and police. Mm -hmm. Uh, They'd like that system. And that deliberation led to an answer of no, we will not do X for this government given the poor human rights record. 
But then it came back for a limited application in a particular location type of facility. And there was a yes, but. Uh, and the but was a, a beautiful piece of text that was talked about what could not be executed in the system. It could not have pattern recognition of this form. It could not do predictions of this form and so on. We could not use facial recognition in this way. I had some pride in the process as and the, the deliberation and to the precedent that would set for the company. And then a third case I'll just mention um, involved an engagement that Brad Smith has talked publicly about, which was with a, a large uh, county sheriff's office that read about, you know, you can tell, you can imagine if you're a, a lay person reading about like the magic of facial recognition, you say, well, we want that, you know, it's like, and they said, we want, we'd like you to help with this. You are one of your customers. We have your productivity suite. Can you help us with this special custom tailored approach to facial recognition? We want to use it in these three scenarios. And I said, oh my gosh, we're already concerned about facial recognition. We're working very closely on principles of facial recognition. We've worked on to help Washington State to actually to help with writing legislation that became law. But earlier on, we, we on this case that came up, which helped us actually think through some of these issues, the scenarios included like dash cam or vest cam of a police person out in, in the wild. Another scenario was facial recognition at the time someone is being is comes to a a jail to figure out who they are if they don't have any ID. And then there was a scenario for inside the jails. People would, it was hard sometimes to, to, to know who was who and people would exchange their ID cards. And I don't know for what reasons, you know, uh, going to the commissary and so on. Mm-hmm. And the deliberation led to, no, this technology is not ready for prime time in the open world of the police stop. Uh, and we described why. Okay. Someone, you have somebody and they're at, they've reportedly committed a crime and they're under arrest and you want to figure out who they are. Okay, we deliberated about that use. When would you use that technology? But we decided it would only be interim. It would be a preliminary exploration with that department. And they had to follow these rules if we were going to do this. And it was along the lines of a very detailed list of requirements like, okay, we will explore together. You need to get your citizenry involved in, in, in a review of this technology before it goes into, into place. You need to have the appropriate appeal and redress possible you know, systems in place. You need to do all this recording of how it's working, failures and successes of how it works, false positives and false negatives. Mm-hmm. We want to report at this rate, you know, quarterly reports will get together. And Microsoft will learn with you about the upsides and downsides of this system. Well, the bottom line of this story is interesting. The sheriff's office came back and said, from these detailed reports, they said, thank you so much for educating us. We don't want this technology now because we realize <laughs> we've learned a lot from your, your analysis and it's not really ready for us to use. And they backed away from it. And we felt we did a great service, not just in thinking through the technologies for ourselves, what, you know, our own responsibilities when it came to fielding a technology like this that could have you know, implications for civil liberties and civil rights, privacy, these ethical areas we care about, these ethical, we'll call, go back off to Microsoft's AI principles, but also to educate um, the role of educating about this so-called magical technology everyone's reading about. And I think that's a really important observation. You know, part of the responsibility of AI is to educate the folks that are going to use it. I imagine there's 
quite a lot that goes into internal communications around a effort like Ether and training engineers to know when they should raise the flag and start to ask questions about a, a technology. Are you are there a set of educational responsibilities or things that you think that we as an industry you know, need to be committed to from a, an education perspective around responsible use of AI? I, I think so. And this, you know, Microsoft feels and has been running like a, an AI business school trying to share these principles with partners. I, I, I'd like to see more sharing going on at the level of details among all the partnership on AI organizations, including the nonprofits, to come up with best practices and to educate about them. Education and training came up as being critical topics um, and requirements for recommendations being made when it came to this. We haven't gotten to this story yet, which is the story of the National Security Commission on AI, which I just came off of and we just fielded a report after two years. But it really called out the need for training and best practices when it comes to these to the fielding of AI technologies when it comes to national security agencies of various kinds. Sorry to jump ahead if you we, we would go there, but no, it's a, um, it, it just was such a, such a central point of the training and, and sort of getting people on the same page when it comes to engineering, building, fielding, reviewing these systems. I'd love to have you share a bit about that effort and your involvement in it. It's one of the things that, that caught my interest because I think there's, you know, we think you, you mentioned you didn't use the words, but you alluded to kind of smart cities as one of the ways that folks, governments want to apply artificial intelligence. And sometimes that comes off as a euphemism for surveillance. And we, I think, have a, you know, we're justified in being suspicious of security and security apparatus and their use of technologies like AI. Tell us about that report, that effort, how it came about and some of the key findings. Yes. Yeah, so in 2018, the U.S. Congress, which commissioned this study, called for a deep analysis of AI and its relationship to where the United States is and could be when it came to applications of AI. And uh, this panel um, called the National Security Commission on AI or NSCAI was established in 2019. It's gone for two years, and on March 1st, it fielded its report. It's available at nscai.gov. If you want to read the report, it's a 750-plus page report. And so I'm forgiven for not having finished it before. <laughs> I, think, I think it's well done, and you can read the sections you want to look at with care. I was mostly involved in terms of my detailed attention on four of the chapters, as they're called, one on the future of R&D, where's AI heading? Mm-hmm. The second one on trustworthy AI and building trustworthy systems. The third on civil liberty, civil rights, and privacy of AI systems, getting into our values. And the fourth on this really interesting and challenging area that there's lots of emotion about for good reason, AI and lethal autonomous weapons. Mm-hmm. These four chapters that I think are, are um, and the others are really lay out the um, ideas, directions, challenges with clarity. We put a lot of work into writing for both experts and non-experts alike. 
I was um, chair of the area we called ethical and responsible AI, which led to those two chapters, chapter seven and eight, seven on trustworthiness and eight on, I would say, values, ethics, civil liberties. It's interesting, the original name for my line of effort that I chaired was AI ethics. But you think about what we mean by ethics often brings to mind issues of values and rights and uh, trade-offs and deep questions about beliefs. And but there's a whole other area of responsible AI, which gets into engineering issues like human AI collaboration methods, um, the role of the human being uh, when it comes to working with AI systems, issues around um, security and uh, trustworthiness, reliability. How well does an AI system face adversarial attacks, uh, these new kinds of attacks called machine learning attacks, and so on. And so you wouldn't necessarily call those kinds of issues ethics. I would call them like engineering challenges with robustness and trustworthiness. So we ended up splitting up that our area into two pillars, one focusing on, on what I would say is value, civil rights, civil liberties, which I think is very important in a report on national security agencies using AI. As you right. mentioned before, there's this interesting tension and we, don't, we, we want to be careful to to know who it is that we are uh, as the United States and our constitutional principles and looking at issues of reliability. I, 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 what I can say is, and I'm very proud of about this report, is the report really considered values, civil liberties and civil rights and privacy as foundational to everything in the report. Kept coming back to that. And I remember when somebody in one of the plenary, you know, we would have these plenary sessions with like Mm -hmm. public and journalists. Somebody asked a question uh, at the Zoom meeting, wasn't this going to be costly, all these values and all the reviews you're asking for and the oversight and the committees and the processes in place? Wouldn't that put us in a non-competitive place in the world with AI? But my reaction was, you know, this is who we are. And it means it's going to be costlier. And it may slow us down, but it's who we are. It was just quiet at that point. Because you think about it, you know, these technologies can be dangerous. They can be oppressive. They're already being used by authoritarian regimes to oppress. And we need to be cautious and careful and provide an example to the world about a norm for how these technologies can and should be used when it comes to agencies like FBI, NSA, CIA, Homeland Security, Health and Human Services, and so on, that we were kind of looking at for the agencies that would be using these technologies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to dig into that report some more. And if you don't mind, I'll pick your brain as to some folks to talk to to dig deeper into some of the issues that it Oh, raises. absolutely. By the way, um, I, I was curious, well, how did I get selected to do this, to be a co- what we're called commissioners? Uh-huh. And if you look in, in the way that Congress wrote the charge, by the way, they said, the committee will consider the methods and means necessary to advance the development of AI, machine learning, and associated technologies to comprehensively address the national security and defense needs of the U.S. Well, you looked at why I was selected. They had a whole like a, a list of how commissioners would be selected in the actual legislation they had, and uh, in, in, you know, on record. So the the chair of the House Armed Services Committee gets to vote for one person. And that's, that happened to be Eric Horvitz. I said, well, 
that's really Adam Swift. You know, the, the Senate, you know, I, I was actually invited directly. The Pentagon has, and so each commissioner came, was invited by a different agency or a different process. But it was such a wonderful group of people to work with, these commissioners. Fabulous, some some long-term colleagues, some people I had just met, all pretty, you know, deeply passionate about doing a good job and thinking through these issues for the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to be sensitive to the the time that you've been so gracious to share with us uh, and maybe start to wrap up and have you share a bit about not just your vision for the future, but also how dovetailing to our conversations about citizenry, how we as citizens, scientists, developers can engage in the, the process at all the various levels that it's taking place, government, company, organizations. Any any thoughts on that? It's a, it's a bit of a broad question, <laughs> admittedly. Yeah, I have yeah, lots of thoughts. I mean, I just was invited to give some opening remarks to computer science educators at the um, SIGSI Technical Symposium a couple weeks ago, which just bought, it's the largest uh, gathering of educators. My comment was, boy, it's it's great to see all this interest in computer science. It's also great to have all this influence uh, in the world, but with great power and influence now as computer scientists, whether it be in AI or systems or networking or HCI, you know, comes incredible responsibility now. Mm-hmm. You never would think, you know, when I, when I was doing computer science work, we were worrying about, you know, algorithms and getting, again, getting things to work and understanding big O and, and so on. You would never would have thought that all of a sudden it's like we, we have to be teaching in classes now, uh, and we are. It's been great to see the innovation going on, values and ethics and case studies, even asking ourselves big questions like, is it okay to use machine learning to optimize clicking on an ad or how much time someone engages with a service, with a timeline? with an Xbox game. Uh, and, and so um, we're getting these interesting questions that we have to start thinking about and become very mindful as engineers as we go now that we are talking about people's lives, how they spend their time, what content they digest. We're talking about security issues. We're talking about breaches of data, potentially. Um, we're talking about oppression versus freedom in the world. Who would have thought that computer science would have become so influential as to require us all as scientists and as engineers and as students to be thinking deeply about uh, issues that are now um, uh, not foreign, but that are a deep part of computer science uh, and computer engineering, um, whether it be in industry or in, in other areas. And so I think that it, that's just, I have to take a deep breath sometimes to think of how far we've come and how important these technologies are and how important they will be going forward. Only more important over time in terms of thinking through how small biases, for example, that let's say they're small, they can be quite big, but even a small bias in how a system is working based on small biases in data that come from the way the data was collected from a biased society, as we all know, uh, historically, could now amplify the biases uh, en masse. And so we have those issues, the issues of privacy, 
you know, data is the fuel of AI systems. We know, and many of us, we get our we get our applications on our phones, and we see some sort of a you know, no matter how privacy oriented we are, we're kind of busy people. We say, okay, 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 short, short location. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll be useful. And and then we see a, a story in the press that a, a government agency was able to purchase a large scale database of the location trails of people commercially, which is okay per current laws. <laughs> that is, is a gray area in particular, I think, uh, actually. Right. And we see new questions coming up. What does it mean when we have large scale commercially available data about faces with names that are available in many applications um, that could be brought together and, and fused into databases that are available commercially. And so, you can just walk through every one of, for example, Microsoft's AI principles. I'll say that again, fairness, reliability and safety, privacy and security, inclusiveness, transparency, accountability. You can walk through each of those six principles and you have rich, hard questions, incredible opportunities for getting things right. Also the ability to stumble. And so lots of work to be done. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned HCI in passing, and I know that one of your topics of interest is kind of complementarity and and kind of the way humans and AI will interact. And um, my sense is that that shapes a bit of your vision for how you know we should be developing AI. And I, I thought it'd be great to hear you uh, riff on that for a bit. Yeah. So. Um... Besides the deep principles of how um, computation leads to minds of the form that we find ourselves thinking with right now, mm-hmm. my, my second most intensive focus has been on human AI complementarity and collaboration and the future of our relationship with AI systems. I think that we can do a lot uh, there. We, we're already making some technical advances where it's, it's design plus there's a science for example, how machine learning can be harnessed to understand human blind spots and weaknesses and to complement people. So we work together as a team for greater holes. We can design better futures for, for civilization, for humanity, in terms of our well-being and our labor and our work by being deliberate about how we think about how we should be designing AI systems to work with people versus always thinking about an automated agent or fully autonomous technologies. That will happen too, of course, but there's so much opportunity in this space of, for example, helping physicians to recognize when they may have missed something and a patient will crash. There's a phrase in medicine I was just talking about at a Stanford symposium called Failure to rescue means that you miss something and a patient died in the hospital. And we've built systems that can actually look out eight hours, 12 hours and say, this patient will need a life-saving intervention within four hours, just to alert every, the staff and the team. That's an example of, uh, of the kinds of complementarity we can have between humans and machines that we have a great partnership People are always going to be central in the world. And to think through what that means in terms of having supportive nurturing technologies is going to be important. We have some really uh, fun work on design for human AI collaboration and exciting work on 
mathematical principles and optimizations where we change the objective function of the machine learning, you know, the gradient descent, such that now it's considering where people are strong and weak. We just published that piece at AAAI in January and then a piece on optimizing for teamwork in February at Edgekai. So it's fabulous directions. Maybe to, to poke in a little bit more on that and maybe be more concrete, it just you talked about kind of this human centrism to the way we think about developing AI. Do you think as a, a thought experiment that we should have put the investment that we're plowing into autonomous vehicles to more complement, I don't know what we would call it, uh, driver assist technologies and is it the case that by investing in the the moonshot of full autonomy, we support or get the technology advances to the driver assist as a interim state, or would we have, for example, reduced the you know the number of deaths per mile or per thousand miles more quickly if we focused on the human computer? centric model directly as opposed to as a byproduct of full autonomy? Well, no one, no one would argue that having a perfectly autonomous vehicle wouldn't be desirable. You can read a book on the way to Portland from Seattle, for example. But on the trajectory of where the technologies have gone and the pace, different companies have taken different approaches. So uh, one major manufacturer has said we believe AI should be there as safety nets and to assist drivers to drive more safely and to reduce deaths that way. Other companies have said, we're going for it. And you'll, you'll, you'll have to grab the wheel once in a while when the system shouts, but we're trying our best to go for it. You know, it's hard to know what's the best path, but at any moment, I would think you want to take the technology that you have and think through its best use. Certainly, um, given the nearly 40,000 deaths in the U.S. By the way, it's been going up, I think, because of distraction of devices, but the, per year uh, in the U.S., and I think it's over over a million deaths um, uh, in the, internationally uh, per year of driving that we need. It's a health disaster. We need, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't necessarily think that the goals are disparate, right? You can, it's a, it gets into the design and the details of, of what we were talking about before. How do you design for really great nurturing systems that can enhance safety and let humans remain in control and still get the best of both worlds at the current technical prowess capabilities that we have? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, so much more there, as has been the case with all of the, the areas that we've explored. But I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and share a bit about what you're working on and thinking about. Yeah, thank you. I, it sounds like we need more time, Sam. So uh, it's been fun talking. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Eric. Thank you very much. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, 
If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.